Live from the MacGyver Project Studios in sunny, warm Wisconsin, it's Nick with the Outstanding Authors Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Ken Reed. Uh, Dr. Reed is the sports policy director of the League of Fans, uh, which is a sports think tank founded by Ralph Nader. Uh, he's also the author of the book, How We Can Save Sports, A Game Plan. I recently read the book, and I'm looking forward to discussing it today with him. Uh, one thing that he says up front in his book is to not mistake his critiques of different issues as his being anti-sport. Uh, in fact, it's quite the opposite. He loves sports and wants to improve them and make them better. Um, and I feel the same way. I've always been a big sports fan, both playing and watching. Um, in fact, a lot of my brain cells are wasted on random and useless pieces of sports trivia knowledge. I just can't help it. Um, so with that, let's give Ken a call. Ken Reed. Hey, Ken. This is Nick. Thanks for doing that. Yeah, not a problem. Is this still a good time for you? Sure. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks a lot for talking to me today. Um, I recently did a podcast with um, Steve Scrogan. I've been listening to his uh, Ralph Nader podcast, and I heard you interviewed on one of the episodes, and I'm a big sports fan, and so I was interested to read your book, and I really enjoyed it. Um, so oh, thanks. glad to talk to you about it. Um, yeah, I thought it was really interesting and, and thought-provoking. Um I guess my first question for you is, um, I'm interested to know a little bit more about your, your sporting life. Like, what sports did you play when you were younger, or maybe you still play, and, and what sports do you like to watch? Are there any particular teams that you, you root for? Well, I, I grew up, my dad was a coach in junior high level, and so I started playing sports when I was about five. I played baseball, uh, basketball, I played football until 10th grade and dropped that. And then I played uh, tennis and golf, some in my high school years, along with basketball and baseball. And then I played basketball and baseball at the University of Denver, uh, just playing baseball my last three years there. And after that, I did some fast-pitch softball and competitive basketball leagues, and I still play competitive tennis and Golf, and then in terms of watching, I I really like watching all sporting events just because I like not just the competition, but I like to see how people react in the stress of competition and you know the ups and downs and just watching people. It's it's fun to me, so mm -hmm. I, I, I like watching most all sporting events. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty similar. I, I've played a lot of sports growing up and and like to watch sports. I'm a I'm a big Philly fan. I'm from Allentown, Pennsylvania. So, um, you know, like the Sixers, Eagles, and Phillies. And, and also I went to Notre Dame, so a big Notre Dame sports fan. Um, and I play um, fantasy baseball, so I'm really into that. And um, I also love soccer a lot, um, international soccer, um, like the World Cup and the Olympics. Um, and There's a big game tonight for the U.S. Yeah, there sure is, yeah. Um, yeah, if they lose, I hear they... They might not uh might not make it to the World Cup, so yeah, it's a it's a big one. <laughs> yeah. Keep them to, to not use American coaches. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's true. So yeah, tell me a little bit about the League of Fans and I guess how you got involved in it and also why you wrote the book. Well, I've I've been a writer for my whole life too, and I was a sports columnist for my high school paper yeah. and kept writing from then on, and. Uh, wrote a lot of issues-related columns and was reading the New York Times one day and saw that Ralph Nader was 
was going to restart League of Fans. It, it had a prior life before, and and the article was talking about some of the issues in sports, and then it quoted Nader saying he was going to restart League of Fans. And fortunately, I had worked with someone who wrote a book about Nader, and so I contacted him and got contact information. And one thing led to another, a couple of interviews, and I got the job as sports policy director for League of Fans. Mm-hmm. And is that your your primary job now, or um, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah, and I also teach some sports management classes online, but that uh, doesn't take that much time, actually. Yeah, and what all does that entail as the policy director? Like, what are your um, what's your typical day like, or like what um, what kind of areas do you focus on? kind of a misnomer because some of the issues are fan related but a lot yeah. of them are athlete related and uh, you know from little leagues on up to the professional level so I think the best way to think of it is kind of a think tank for sports issues mm-hmm. I mean this country we, we have think tanks for economics and healthcare and military etc but right. there really wasn't one for sports related policy type questions and so that's kind of what we do, we will write occasional white paper, position papers on certain issues. Um, I write a column for Huffington Post and have my regular blog on League of Fans and uh, the book and uh, appear on TV, radio shows, podcasts like this one. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of just playing that role of a advocate for fairness and justice in sports, I would call it. As you know from the book, we think that the two biggest problems facing underlying all sports issues are win-at-all-cost mentality and right. problem-at-all-cost mentality. Mm-hmm. If you look at every issue, they kind of all come back to one or both of those. Yeah, and I thought your point about the – you said the think tanks, they have them for um, you know, health care or, or you know, security issues but not sports. I thought that was – one of the themes of the book that I took away from is that, you know, people, a lot of people think of sports as just like entertainment and fun, which it is. But I think the point of the book was that it's, it's not just like a frivolous endeavor. It's a social institution whose policies are worthy of like study and scholarship in the same way people would analyze energy policy or Medicare policy. And it's like a central sports are a central part of American lives from the pros all the way down to Little League, and those of us who love sports have a responsibility to try and improve them. Exactly. I mean, yeah, sports is considered the toy department. Yeah, right. (laughs) In the United States, other countries don't treat it that way. They'll Mm -hmm. have sports policy departments or minister of sports as part of their government structure. Um, But here it's kind of a free-for-all. It's the least regulated industry in the country. Mm -hmm. You look at Major League Baseball and football, et cetera, they pretty much can have free reign. Um, and so it, there is a need for checks and balances. And it's also one of the biggest industries in the country. If you put all the sports-related things together, it's bigger than the automobile industry, for mm-hmm. example. Right. <clears throat> and even bigger than that is your point that it touches almost everyone, whether you're a sports fan or not, just mm-hmm. because of the, the language of sports transcends everything in this culture um, you know and it touches everyone from the local little league baseball player to the pro athlete so it 
it's wide ranging and it's worthy of serious academic inquiry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think even people who are not sports fans at all, um, you know, they're still paying money in their cable bill for ESPN, whether they like it or not, or being, being taxed for stadiums. Actually, that was one of the first things I was going to ask about. I mean, there's so many different issues we can talk about, <laughs> but um, I, I'll just pick, pick a few from the book. And one of the ones that I, that I, I thought of um, uh, that was relevant to me now, because I, I live in Wisconsin now, and, you know, I thought the, um, your, your writing about the stadium deals was really interesting, you know, because uh, Governor Scott Walker um, last year cut $250 million from the UW budget, um, at the exact same time, he made the state taxpayers pay $250 million for the Milwaukee Bucks new stadium, despite the fact the owners are billionaires and the Bucks aren't even really all that popular outside of Milwaukee. And, um, but they threatened to leave, and so then uh, you know, they, they get what they want. And I was just wondering, and that happens all, all across the country, and I was just wondering like, what kind of needs to change there. Like, is it public opinion or public action or some kind of legal protection, or, or do, do you see that? that changing at all where these these tax um, uh, boondoggles, I guess, will we'll stop. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy in terms of priorities yeah. uh, that taxpayers are building cathedrals for very wealthy sports owners that could easily afford to do it themselves. So it's wrong on the surface. The problem is, they're, like I said before, they're unregulated monopolies, and so they can hold cities hostage to get either a better stadium arena in their own city or to move to another city and, mm. and get a... Uh, so one of the issues that are uh, solutions, potential solutions I threw out in the book was the community ownership model, kind of like the Green Bay. Yeah, Bay. Packers, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Wisconsin, where yeah. the team is basically owned by the fans, who are shareholders, and so there's no way they're going to be leaving Wisconsin or Green Bay anytime soon. Right. And so there's that option. There's spinoffs on that option where a, a city would have right of first refusal if, if the team is to be sold and moved, that they would have a certain period of time to match an offer or either uh, through public dollars or finding a local business or individual owner that would keep the team in town. But mm. I think the ideal scenario is the community ownership model like the Packers have. Unfortunately, the NFL and Major League Baseball don't want that to happen. And so right. they put rules in their bylaws saying that they can't have community ownership anymore. And the Packers were just grandfathered in. Mm-hmm. So that's unfortunate. I'm, I'm not saying that all teams should be owned in that way, but it should at least be an option for communities mm-hmm. who want to save their team and not get, you know, blackmailed all the time every 15 years when the owner wants a new palace to play in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when I first moved to Wisconsin, I, well, drove up to Green Bay and got a tour of Lam- Lambeau Field, and um, yeah, it is really interesting how it's 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 publicly owned and, um, you know, really good good model. And um, and you, you talk about about um, concussions and CTE, and that's obviously a big issue in in sports. And um, you you mentioned that in thirty or forty years, that high, a high school football you think might might not exist anymore because of um, uh, insurance and premiums and things like that. And can you just say a little bit more about that? 
Can I see it developing? We think concussions are the number one sports issue today and will be for the next decade. And Mm -hmm. we're just kind of on as much publicity as it's gotten, including a major movie called Concussion, that we're just on the tip of the iceberg because the discussion so far has just been primarily around professional sports, hockey and football. But Mm -hmm. there's millions of kids playing football and and youth hockey and even soccer, or girls' soccer is second in concussions. It's, it's going to be a huge issue. The more we learn about traumatic brain injuries, the bigger issue it's going to become. And, mm-hmm. and I, I just think, I don't think it, high school football lasts more than 20 years, really? but probably, probably closer to 10, just because there's going to be some lawsuits and the school districts aren't going to be able to afford the premiums for mm-hmm. insurance and they'll just have to drop the sport financially. But, mm-hmm. you know, ethic, ethically, I think they should drop it anyway because public schools, public tax dollars are going to schools to enhance the brain development of these young people. And it's clear that banging your head repetitively over and over is not healthy for the brain's development. Mm-hmm. It's even worse for developing brains that are 12 to 18 still developing than it is for the adults in the NFL. And so I think there will be a couple things happening. I think there's going to be a rise up of parents and a mothers against drunk driving kind of fashion uh, calling for the end of football in mm-hmm. school. But also the insurance costs are just going to be so high that it, it won't go on. And I don't, I'm not asking for a ban on it. I, mm-hmm. Think it with, I mean, I I got two daughters, and I pulled them out of soccer even because I was afraid of the dangers of concussions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wouldn't have my son play football, but I don't think other people should be banned from it if they think they want to have their kid do it. There'll still be private organizations, clubs, right. or whatever. Right. You know, if they can afford the cost, you know, that'll still offer it, I'm sure. But just using public tax dollars high schools I don't think should be done anymore and it probably won't be anymore after a decade or so. Do you foresee um, maybe flag football being an option like high school flag football? Well, the, the problem is and I love football I still watch it so I mm-hmm. guess in some ways I'm a hip, hypocrite but <laughs> I I just there's no there's no magic bullet out there for a while people thought there'd be a helmet that would be developed that would stop it. But the problem is with concussions, it's like jello inside a bowl, and when you get contact, the jello just sloshes against the side of the bowl. That's what happens with the brain. It's fluid and just pounds against the side of the skull. Mm-hmm. So uh, the greatest helmet in the world is good at protecting skull fractures, which it was originally designed to do, but you can't put a helmet directly on the brain so that contact is still going to happen. In fact, some researchers think that putting a helmet on, whether it's football or, or some soccer leagues now are putting helmets on, actually makes things worse because you're adding weight to the neck, so it's adding to the whiplash effect of that extra weight, which increases the sloshing of the brain effect to be non-technical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but, yeah, it's, it's a serious problem. Other sports, I mean, hockey, you can easily get rid of fighting and some right. of the cheap shots that go on and still have a game but football I don't know how you can how you can change the rules enough 
to allow it to be anything like it is. And, and I'm sure there'll be things like play football. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. It won't obviously have the appeal without the violence, but it'll be a lot healthier for our kids, that's for sure. Right. Yeah, and soccer's an interesting one because I, I played soccer all... Um, you know, from the time I was five till I was in high school, and um, and I actually still play um, just uh, recreationally, and um, and and actually have a three year old son who um, I mean is not not quite ready to play yet, but you know, at some point you know it'll be time to start thinking about that, and um, you know when, when when it comes to headers, like I, I I found that the time where my head really kind of like like where I really felt it would be like on a like if if it was a if it, if the goalie punted it or if it was um you know like a a, a a goal kick and I'm trying to win the ball like at midfield and the ball is coming up real high in the air when you head it there you can really feel it yeah I appreciate it for I didn't play soccer yeah. myself but like I said my kids did for years competitive mm-hmm. soccer and I understand having a passion for a sport but if you look at and in my book um, a chapter on concussions there were several studies about soccer and what it can do i mean one of them that comes to mind is that they this one study looked at swimmers versus soccer players before and after the season and the Mm -hmm. swimmers cognitive abilities actually went up which makes sense because cardiovascular activity actually grows brain cells yeah cognitive abilities of the soccer players were actually down and and there's just more since that book was published in terms of the scary part isn't just concussions and what we're right. we're going to see in the next 10 years is it's not just concussions it's sub-concussive impact that you, a mm-hmm. lot of times players whether it's football or soccer or hockey don't even realize they've had a brain injury but right. there is brain injury going on inside and, and that the repetitiveness of, of something like headers which most of the concussions in soccer don't actually come from headers. They come from collisions with other right. heads or falling right. down. But some of them do come with heading, too. But uh, it's it's just a long-time repetitive impact. There was another study of uh, some professional soccer players, males, in Europe, and some of the cognitive decline and disabilities they experienced after their careers were over. So it's a, it's a real problem. I think as much as purists of soccer are going to hate it, I think you can still play soccer and soccer will thrive with, you know, just taking balls off your chest. Right, yeah, definitely. Or God forbid, mm. even off your arms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, soccer, I got nothing. I think it's a good game, especially for young kids. It's all mm. the cardio right. running around. But once they start taking... You know, some of those balls can go up to 40, 50 miles an hour on right. corner kicks. You know, it's that's when it becomes dangerous. So if there's a way, unlike football, I think you can modify soccer rules so the sport will survive pretty much intact. Yeah, and your, your point about collisions, I actually um, remember I had to go to the hospital and get stitches when in the middle of a soccer game I went up for a header and I bonked heads with somebody and got a big gash over my eye um so yeah it's definitely a definitely another source of 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 head related trauma do, do you know what the status is of like youth soccer as far as like are there initiatives to stop heading for young kids or i imagine yeah, coaches are probably more aware of it some leagues 
Yeah. I'm heading under under 14. Um, I'm under 12. So, yeah, there is that movement uh, to at least delay when heading becomes part of the game. Mm-hmm. And even with football, I mean, the Ivy League just a few months ago came out for football that the Ivy League football teams won't be allowed to tackle during the season, during the mm-hmm. week. Right. To say to say some of the repetitive bashing of the heads, you know. And it besides being good for the brain, it'll help because there will be fewer injuries. There was a coach at St. John's, Minnesota, Division Three school named John Gagliardi, mm-hmm. to touch on in the book, and he's actually the winningest coach of all time at all levels. But he never had tackling during practice, and they won multiple national championships. Mm-hmm. So. It doesn't mean that you can't be competitive by doing that. And so I think as long as there's youth football and high school football, that those programs should adopt the Ivy League rules of no tackling mm-hmm. during the week. Yeah, That would be one way to lessen mm-hmm. the effects of head trauma. Yeah, and you mentioned hockey, and um, I'm not I'm – not really a big hockey fan and most of that is because I've never liked the the fighting has always turned me off and you know I think there's definitely a CTE component to it but it seems even bigger than that to me like it just seems like a really bad example to set for kids and it just seems like really behind the times and I feel like people who say that it's necessary to have it because then the players can police themselves and not have the star player getting attacked but I I think it's kind of a lame excuse because in college or the Olympics it's banned, but doesn't seem to cause any problems. Yeah. And you just need the refs to call it tight and the penalties to be severe enough, and then you wouldn't, then you wouldn't have it. But I think it's like like football. Some people like the viol- some people like the violence, and it's hard to change something once it started. Yeah, it's. I mean, unfortunately, the NHL is like a Stone Age mentality. Yeah, still, still allowing fighting. Like you make a perfect point. Hockey and Olympic hockey. Fun to watch. It's fast, right. and they don't have the fighting, and the game is so good. The police themselves thing is just crazy. I mean, why why have officials out there? If you start calling the penalties and make them tougher penalties, they're, they're not going to fight anymore. It's pretty simple. Yeah. Yeah, it's actually been in the news. Uh, the last couple of days, they've had some emails from the Gary Bettman, NHL commissioner, uh, that have been, been leaked, and it seems like one of the considerations too are is that these fighters who wouldn't wouldn't make the league uh if not for fighting because that's all they do that they'd be out of a job basically um that, that doesn't seem like a good good reason to no. to keep, keep it in, in fact, um <laughs> there was a great book i forget uh, the player it was written about a new york times writer wrote about the guy who I believe, ended up committing suicide. But mm-hmm. anyway, he was a, a goon, classic NHL yeah. goon. His only job was to get in fights, and he would be physically ill the night before games when he knew he was supposed to fight someone the next day, and it was just highly stressful on him mm-hmm. being like that, but that was his livelihood, so he went ahead and did it. But I think I think there's fewer and fewer. I mean, there's still the goons around, but... Right. Even the ones that fight a lot at least have a lot more skating skills and hockey ability, mm-hmm. just fighting ability. So it, it, everything's moving in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, fixing some of these problems, it's just slow, and it's 
understandable because of all the tradition, et cetera. But at some point, you just have to say, you know, what's best for the athletes and the players, Mm -hmm. especially young athletes. That's my main concern now is, you know, high school and younger athletes in all these sports, making sure it's safe. Yeah, and speaking of young athletes, I thought um, one of the things in your book that um, I kind of really made me think or I hadn't really thought of before was the you're talking about the lack of sports options kind of um, like like for, for high school people that are not, not varsity. And I hadn't really thought of it like that, but it's it's true that really like once you get to high school, if you're not a varsity athlete, you don't really have many options. And like for me, I, I stopped playing soccer and basketball um, you know, you know, both around high school and, and, you know, part of that was cause I was in a big high school and it was like, you know, what, what, it wasn't easy to make the team, you know, especially basketball, but, um, you know, there, there weren't really many options to just, you know, keep playing soccer, um, or basketball. And it sounds like in Europe, from what you said in the book that there are almost like more, um, there's more of a structure for people to, to keep playing, and I thought that would be really, really cool initiative to just have more, like, you know, kind of semi-formal or intramural leagues where people could play um, instead yeah, of all those folks on varsity. Totally. You know, the, the argument for athletics in schools is that it's such a good learning experience. You learn things about adversity, yeah. teamwork, and leadership, etc., that you can't get in a normal classroom. So. Just assuming for a minute that that's true, which I think it can be if it has the right coaching and stuff, um, then why is such a small percentage of the student body playing athletics? I mean, it's like 10%. A lot of schools mm-hmm. uh, play varsity athletics, and so 90% of them aren't getting the benefit of this great learning experience that everyone says sports are. I'm not for getting rid of varsity athletics, because it was a great experience for me, and and it's a, there's a lot of positives to it, but I yeah. think everyone who wants to play should be allowed to play. And, and intramurals used to be a big part of all middle school and high school mm-hmm. programs where anyone could play basketball or whatever the sport might be in intramurals in a more informal setting and play other students. And now those have you know gone the way of the dinosaur, intramurals in high schools and middle schools. And... And then in in the club system here in the United States, it's all designed for elite athletes, the best right. of the best, because these clubs want to go and win trophies and win awards and get their kids college scholarships, which helps attract more parents to pay the big dollars for the club sports. And you touched on it, in the European club system is so much different. Actually, over there, they don't even have varsity-type sports in schools. They have some intramural programs, but mostly if you want to play high-level competitive athletics, you go to the club, and and those clubs have programs from 6 to 60. I mean, you, you join one of those big soccer clubs in Europe, you can start playing at, at the lowest level when you're 6 and still be playing when you're adult in your 50s, mm-hmm. 60s even. And it's a lot different than the system that's set up here where it's all – directed towards elite athletes. The other thing that's also sad is physical education programs are dropping like flies. I mean, it used to be that you went to PE every day of the week, and now it, then it was like three days a week, then two, 
than one. Sometimes kids in schools now go a whole semester without a PE class. So at the same time, everyone's crying and moaning about childhood obesity epidemic in this country. Things like physical education are being dropped. So mm-hmm. kids spend more time in the classroom, which is bad for two reasons. Not only the kids less healthy, they're more obese and less fit overall, but it hurts their test scores. I mean, the reason a lot of these PE programs have been dropped is because the school superintendents on down say we got to have better science and math scores, so we need more classroom time. But the studies show that the fit kids actually perform better academically, and there's almost a direct correlation between level of fitness and how well they perform on these standardized academic tests in high schools. And so dropping PE in the name of getting better test scores is the exact opposite of what these schools should be doing. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And you talk about coaching a lot, too, and I actually have coached uh, youth basketball on and off for the last uh, seven or eight years. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a church league. It's, you know, fifth through eighth graders. Um, but it is amazing how seriously some people take it. And, um, you know, my, my philosophy is always to try to, you know, build people up and not to be a, a, a dictator or try to be too controlling. But I think coaches at, well, at both the pro, pro level and the youth level, I think, want to justify their existence and so it becomes about them and their, their ego and I, I liked what you said about the like the type X and the type type Y coach you know and the type X coach is like the like the Bobby Knight school um, yeah and the, the type Y is the more like like Brad Stevens from the Celtics and um, like one thing that I that I find interesting about basketball coaching is I, I like to notice how coaches use their timeouts like um like if there's you know ten seconds left, and and the team has the ball, I always like it when the team just goes, and cause I feel like the the defense is not set, and so there's more of a chance they're going to score. But I feel like most coaches will will call timeout because they want to basically justify their 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 place. And if if the team loses, then people are going to think, what's the coach doing? But I notice coaches like Phil Jackson or Greg Popovich who are established guys who have won championships they they never call timeout like they always just let their team go and i think that's that's really interesting because they're, they're secure um and they don't really care what people think yeah i agree with you on a lot of <clears throat> a lot of your points there i mean um, the autocratic authoritarian coach mm-hmm. is just i mean the, the the theory from the media and coaches is that you have to be a kick them in the butt coach to be but as I pointed out in the book, there's just as many coaches like Dean Smith and even John Wooden right. who never swore at their players and were positive, et cetera, had just as much success as the Bobby Knight types. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. and then in terms of yeah, the control and egos, yeah, I mean, especially in college basketball, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like the egos of the coaches marching up and down the sideline are so huge and they and they don't let the players play um yeah i I agree i think the whole trend in coaching has to go towards a more positive approach in terms of not only teaching skills but teaching the whole athlete and and making them the best person they can possibly be on and off the court uh character development those types of things and 
the old famous quote about Vince Lombardi with the Packers was he treats us all the same like dogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't think it has to be that way to have success, and that was my point in that. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that chapter and the same thing with, like I mentioned with John Gagliardi the all-time winningest college football coach right. super positive uh, low control let the players uh, call the plays most of the time things like that he, he was secure in himself as a coach and the idea was to put more faith in the players right. and less, less in your own ego yeah, I've also, I thought that, that was awesome, actually. I, I remember I was actually going to just bring that up about how, how John Cagliardi let his players call the plays. And I've always thought if I was a football coach, even at a lower, like like high school level, I would want to try to empower my players to to call their own plays and kind of, um, you know, and uh, uh, even if they didn't pick necessarily the best play, at least I would be making them think creatively. And it's amazing to me that even at the pro level, you know, other than like Peyton Manning and maybe a few guys, you know, for the most part, the, even pro quarterbacks don't get to call their own plays. You know, the coach wants to wants to do it, and um, yeah, like I, I think Chip Kelly is an interesting case study because I'm an Eagles fan, and when he first took over, I was excited because I, he seemed kind of innovative, and 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 he he's not like from the the Bobby Knight school of, of like screaming or yelling, but at the same time, what I what I came to learn was that he actually was kind of a control freak, and he you know, like monitored the players' sleep patterns and made them all drink smoothies and all this kind of stuff and, and was he was not good with the media at all and and, and so um, yeah, it just was, was kind of eye opening to see how how his his tenure kind of the the, well, the bloom came off the rose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to me the the worst case now is in baseball, high school and college baseball coaches, a lot of them, mm-hmm. they'll call every single pitch. Really? Oh, wow. The, catch, yeah. the catcher looks over to the dugout after every pitch. Yeah. And signals on, which to me is way over the top in terms of controlling. Right. I mean, first of all, the catcher has the perfect feel and view for seeing what pitches work and mm-hmm. how the batters are reacting to those pitches, etc. But beyond that, in high school level and below, it's supposed to be an educational experience. Right. Part of it is learning what works and what doesn't work. And you know, one of the saddest case studies of a, a pampered, over-controlled athlete was this guy named Chris Jackson, who became Mahmoud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the pros, he was a superstar at LSU, and then he didn't do so well in the pros. But he got to the Denver Nuggets and. The trainer gave him a prescription for something and like three or four days later asked him, how's that prescription working out for you? And, and he said, I don't know. I haven't got it yet. He, when it comes down to it, they figured out he didn't know how to take a prescription to the pharmacy. <laughs> prescription. Yeah. Because ever since he was a little kid, adults pampered him and did everything for him. Mm. So that, that kind of is a, a negative story in terms of what athletics should be doing in right. building independence and creative thought and independent thinking and mm-hmm. all the, the whole round of character development. Right. Yeah, and it's, you know, I think there's a lot of parallels with, like, with, as far as coaching, like, with parenting or teaching or just leadership in general as far as, like, um, you know, I guess it's just, like, basic 
power and, and how does somebody exert their power? Do they are they a dictator where they and, and try to control everything, or do they let the you know whoever they're kind of watching over have some more freedom? And I mean, if you if you let let your kid have more freedom, you know there are times where you're not necessarily going to get what, what you want, or if, if the stakes are high, you might need to kind of step in and take control. But if it's just you know relatively low stakes, like you know, and you could kind of attribute that to what you're saying with like high school and college baseball should be more educational. And, and, and so in that sense, the stakes are kind of not as, as, as high. And so, you know, maybe the coach could just let the players <laughs> call the pitch. And if it didn't work out, then what's the big deal? Um, oh, and then use it as an educational opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Right. Why, what were you thinking on this pitch? And right. why did, why did you call it? And, you know, let them come to the conclusion. Yeah. Like you said, the more, if you give them more freedom, when they're younger, when the stakes are lower, then the bad decisions don't have as bad of consequences as when they go off to college and everything's been done for them and then right. they're 20 and, the, and they make a serious decision that could endanger their life even. So yeah, that's one of the great quotes is, and I think it was John Wooden, but it might have been someone else before him, said sports don't build character, they reveal it. And, yeah. and, and sports, I think, can help build character if there's good leadership and coaching involved. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you see, <laughs> what was it last year, the high school football coach uh, told two of his players to go head-on tackle the referee because he didn't like one of the coaches. Right, yeah. <laughs> yep. So there's nothing inherent about sport that builds character unless the people in charge make it a priority. Right. And with uh, college sports, one of the points that you made, which I thought was interesting, was that the um, the, the the linking of education or of you know of, of college education to to sports, you know, way back a long time ago, is kind of like the the big mistake and one that we're not really practically going to be able to reverse. But I hadn't really thought of that. But it, it is true that it seems like in Europe they they don't really have that same linkage from school. Like you mentioned, the, the club structure and. And one of my favorite quotes was, I think it was from somebody else in, in the book, and it said that universities are ill-equipped to run a $6 billion entertainment business. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, it really, it really makes a lot of sense. You know, you have these college presidents who are not necessarily trained in, in what college sports has, has become, which is like massive, massive entertainment. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, ideally, I think. If you're going to have intercollegiate athletics, it would be the Division Three model, mm -hmm. you know, where there are actually students there that choose the school to go to school there and then decide to play sports. There's no athletic right. scholarships. And mm -hmm. There's no 90,000-seat stadiums and 20,000-seat basketball arenas. It's, it's just gotten so crazy because of the TV rights deals yeah. that it's you know, and I, I love college sports. I like the idea of watching teams or your alma mater mm -hmm. and thinking that they're real students for that school playing. And some of them still are. They're the ones that can still be good students in real classes and put in 70 hours in their sport or whatever or have to be admired. But, I mean, when – Schools are playing basketball games starting at 8.30 at night on Wednesday night. Right. 
how is that how is that possibly in the best interest of student athletes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, or football games on Thursday night. A lot of Thursday night football now. Right. Yeah. Actually, every day of the week. I mean, the smaller companies, ESPN. We need something on Tuesday, so we'll throw out a game on Tuesday Mm -hmm. or Wednesday. Yeah, the conference realignment has just gotten crazy. Like, like West Virginia now is in the Big 12, and so they play all the Texas and Oklahoma schools, and Texas A&M mm-hmm. is in the SEC, so they play Florida. And, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, Big Ten Rutgers is... Big yeah, Rutgers and Nebraska are in the same conference, and um doesn't, doesn't make any sense at all. Um, yeah, the Big 12 has 10 teams. Right, yeah. 14. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Big Ten is 14 fees. <laughs> um, yeah, what's, what drives all those decisions? Money. Yeah. Money, money, money. Yeah. But, I yeah. mean, do you think it's good for the women's swimming team at West Virginia right. <laughs> right. travel to Texas right. for, a, for a swimming meet right. and miss three days of school or whatever? <laughs> yeah, and not just once, but all the time. I mean, they got Texas... Uh, Texas Tech, Baylor, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State, you know, they're, they're making lots of trips. <laughs> um, well, look at how much money they're making. I mean, yeah. the argument is that these sports programs in college really aren't making that much money. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it hardly passes the last test, or it doesn't pass the last test. Look at the NFL and how much money those owners are making. Mm-hmm. With that, and they're paying salaries to all those players, big salaries. And Michigan, Notre Dame, those kind of football programs with 100,000-type seat stadiums, mm-hmm. club seats, the big TV deals, and all they're paying the players is a seat in a classroom and some books and you know, a couple meals. Tell me they're not making incredible revenue. Right. So, yeah, I, I want to ask you about that, too, like the paying for players. I um, I kind of mixed feelings about it because I feel like it's it's – you know, not fair that these kids are getting exploited in a way to get the universities all this money. Um, but on the other hand, I, I wonder if we give them too much money, like what that would do to youth sports and if that would make it any crazier than it already is as far as like now all of a sudden, you know, the, the high schools, like instead of just getting a scholarship, now you're, you're getting paid if, if like what that would do to high school athletics. So like, what's your, what's your best solution for how to solve that? I'm not sure what you mean by how paying players in college would affect high school athletics. What, what is your point there? I, I guess the point is that like it would make it like just a, like much more almost like serious and cutthroat than it already is. Um, and like if it would make like AAU teams or, or high school football, um, you know, if like no. it, would make, it would make varsity athletics maybe even more of a priority or coaches even more. More nuts because they, now instead they of get paid in college, yeah, yeah, because maybe now instead of like wanting their kid to get a scholarship, now it's getting a scholarship plus lots of money. But I suppose that that whether it's in college or or in in like like major league baseball, I suppose they're just going to get paid anyway. So maybe it wouldn't wouldn't make that much of a difference. Yeah, baseball players sign right out. Right. Of yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but anyway, back to your point about college, I think yeah. the best solution is because there's all, it's very complicated because with Title IX, you pay mm-hmm. someone on the women's tennis team the same as the star quarterback on the football team. Or 
the men's swimming team, for that matter. Doesn't matter what the gender is. How do you determine who gets paid what? And mm-hmm. and and for Title IX, it has to be considered equal. So I think there's too much of a mess. Then you'd have to hire payroll and all kinds of things like that. I think the solution is what just what the Olympics did. The Olympics used to be, oh, we're just for amateur athletes, and then they started to allow them to get endorsement contracts and things like that. And, and the Olympics didn't fall apart. In fact, they got more popular than ever. So I think if, if in college sports, if, if they just allowed athletes to make money on jersey sales or signing calendars or making calendars mm-hmm. or whatever their fame can do for them, right. it's just like, to me, it's very similar to kids going to college on a music scholarship and they're allowed to on weekends go down to the local lounge and do an, a music act and make a couple hundred bucks that night mm-hmm. playing. There's no rules against that. Uh, I just I just think if you don't worry about paying them, but you just allow them to make whatever people are willing to offer them. Say the local auto dealer wants you to come down and sign autographs for mm-hmm. an hour. Is that the worst thing in the world? Right. Yeah, and that would sense. take care of the issue of who gets paid the most. That way, mm-hmm. the third string right. defensive tackle doesn't have to get paid as much as the quarterback, and it takes care of the Title IX problem because this is happening apart from the athletic department. Mm-hmm. I just think I think it worked for the Olympics, and it could work for college sports too. And what was the point in the book? I'm trying to remember about the the tax exempt status of universities, and um, I, I remember thinking that was interesting. Like how, um, like they, like they, if they were to pay players, would, would they lose their status? Is that what it was? Yeah, because colleges it makes it even a greater, uh, great, more of a great deal for college athletic departments because they operate under the umbrella of a nonprofit institution, mm-hmm. educational institution. So not only are they rolling in the dough, I mean, they they operate as a nonprofit in terms of tax issues. Mm-hmm. And so they, NCAA doesn't want to lose this amateur status and student-athlete idea because then it would be harder for them to argue that there's any logic for them to keep the nonprofit status. Mm-hmm. If they're actually paying players, it would have to be kind of a a subset of the university like the cafeteria or something that's mm-hmm. a for-profit entity on campus but it's under the umbrella of the university but it's just not part of the non-profit and then my, my last question um you, you mentioned the possibility of a national sports commission um uh something that would be you know passed by congress and would uh be an administrative body um, that would kind of oversee a lot of these issues. Is that something that is in the works, or has that been talked about, or like how how close are we to something like that? Not very close in the United States. I mm-hmm. mean, other countries have have commissions like that, or Minnesota Sport, or sports ethics organization for, for the country, whatever. Here, it's been talked about several times, both um, on conservative and liberal side in terms of partisanship. It's, a lot of people think it makes sense in terms of um, what things like we talked about before. I mean, how can we 
use sports to make the country healthier. I mean, what can we do to help make sure that there's physical education classes and intramural sports for and and clubs for adults so every, everyone who wants to participate can and encourage them to do so. Um, that doesn't happen now because um, the NFL and the Major League Baseball, NBA, and NHL kind of run sports in this country de facto. And so they're interested primarily in sports, or I mean profits and entertainment, and so they don't put much thought or time into what's best for the country mm-hmm. right. and the rest, rest of the millions of citizens. And that's kind of something the sports commission would be charged to do. I think I talked some in the book about like Australia and some of these other countries that seem to have a pretty good grasp on it, where their sports commission has a couple components. Uh, a part of it, trying to make the elite athletes as good as possible in their country for the Olympics, et cetera, training program for the best of the best. But the other part of the sports commission would be getting everyone else involved in participating. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's to me, that's one of the saddest things about this country is the lack of overall participation in sports where people say we're a sports-mad country, but we're actually a sports-spectator-mad country. Right, yeah. Love, mm-hmm. love sitting on the couch, eating Cheetos, and drinking <laughs> a beer, watching sports. Right. <laughs> but the percentage of adults that participate in sports is lower than other countries. Mm-hmm. I think something that a National Sports Commission could address. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Thanks a lot for talking to me and for your time. I really appreciate it. Do you talk to Ralph Nader much? I do. I mean, he's indirectly my boss. Or oh, okay. Indirectly. Yeah. Okay. But but he's so busy on so many other issues. That, yeah. You know, every couple of months probably is all. Okay. Talk, yeah. Well, tell him I said hello. <laughs> yeah. He's still going strong. He is. Yeah. Sure is. Um, but yeah, yeah. Good. Good luck with the the League of Fans, and yeah, I'll um, I will uh, be be checking it out. All right. Well, thanks. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. All right. You too. Bye. So thanks again to Ken Reed for joining me today. Uh, I always love talking sports. Um, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the future of high school football. It's so popular that it's hard to imagine it being gone in 10 to 20 years, but stranger things have happened. Um, and once again, his book is How We Can Save Sports, A Game Plan, and his organization is League of Fans. Um, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email me at sweeto37 at gmail.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Project MacGyver. And my blog is themgaiverproject.blogspot.com. Uh, you can also listen for me in my other podcast, which is called Olympic Legends. Thank you for listening.